We are encountering silence. Encountering silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be a part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Martin Laird is professor of early Christian studies at Villanova University. He's an Augustinian friar and the author of three widely renowned books on Christian contemplative spirituality, Into the Silent Land, A Sunlit Absence, and An Ocean of Light. He is also the author of an academic monograph, Gregory of Nyssa and the Grasp of Faith. Father Martin lectures and leads retreats widely through the United States, the United Kingdom, and Ireland. His books are deeply grounded in the Christian tradition and yet are accessible guides to how silence integrates every day into itself. Father Martin Laird, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you very much. Very often, because of the topic of the podcast is about silence, we often like to start the conversation off with our guests when silence first became important or made itself known to our guests so that why explore silence? What drew you in? Uh, what is that relationship? Maybe it's something that started as a kid. Maybe it was something later on in academic studies. But we're curious as to what each of our guests, how silence first became uh, tr- attracted your attention. Well, frankly, it's, it's been the, with me since uh, quite a young age. The very first time silence presented itself to me. Of course, I had no language for it, which was the better, really. (laughs) I was simply walking in our back property uh, through the very wooded area, and simply there was just this vast spaciousness. Uh, All I know is I was caught in uh, wonder My vocabulary didn't include spaciousness or vastness. And I would frequently return to that, uh, whether walking the dogs or just just myself. I do know I was told that I was uh, silent by nature as a a child once I began uh, first grade. Apparently, I was impossible. Uh, uh, <laughs> before that age, my parents even uh, had a meeting. They told me, say, what are we going to do with him if when he hits puberty? I mean, <laughs> military? Anyway, so I don't know what they're talking about. I was just adventurous. And anyway, um, I calmed down immediately uh, in school and then things went, silence went without uh, comment. I do know I would go for very long uh, bicycle rides um, or long walks with the dogs. And I think that I was uh, responding to that. And then more explicitly, more um, 
Yes, when I entered uh, my religious order, I can remember going uh, upstairs after uh, Compline, and uh, it, I just the thought, the words just. I just said to myself, whatever is meant by salvation, it's silence. Salvation in the sense of you know being being made whole. Mm. Salvation comes from the Latin salus, whole, solid, of of a one piece, not composite. Anyway, what that that whatever whatever salvation meant, that's what I wanted from it. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, and I have to say, the, the, then the sort of formal training in a bishop was very, very helpful. Uh, the, the novice master, we had, um, you know, apart from the liturgy, the hours and work period, meals in common, you know, and being um, incorporated into a new family, uh, a, a new society, a different sort of society, we also had two hours of uh, solitude built into the, the, the day, uh, twice a day, you know, so four in total. And that was for the readings. We, we were to prepare for classes, uh, but also for our own uh, development of our own contemplative uh, practice. And we were exposed to, to, to many uh, but I really responded to the Jesus prayer tradition. In fact, I can remember the day I was walking out on the grounds and um, I simply stepped into the Jesus prayer. So, uh, but my then um, praying of, of the Jesus prayer was met by gradually over time. Uh, with interior silencing, this uh, living presence within that I didn't have to acquire. It found me, so to speak. Right, right. So you were introduced to the Jesus Prayer in the context of your novitiate? Uh, yes, among, among other forms of among mm -hmm. contemplative practices, such as uh, centering prayer, Lexio Divina, but but this became my um, the pathless path. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. This was the prayer that chose you, is what I'm hearing. Yes, the the the, the contemplative discipline, the path, um, and uh, uh, which is why a lot of the in my uh, books, a lot of you know the quotations are from the. Uh, Philokalia. Right. The, uh, in English, it will soon be five volumes, so I don't know how soon, but four volumes. And that it comes right out of the Jesus prayer tradition. Mm. And, you know, which the, the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox claim is their own and, and so forth. They, but it's, it's widely practiced in Western Christians as I go around to speak. To, to people, they'll share with me their practice, and it the there it is most commonly some form of the Jesus prayer. Could you say a little bit about the Jesus prayer for anyone listening who may not be familiar with that practice? Yes, 
Well, we know of, say, a prayer word or prayer phrase that, say, from the uh, um, centering prayer uh, uh, people or from WCCM and uh, Lawrence Freeman, John Main, uh, repeating something. Well, the, uh, to quieten the mind, the inner chatter in the mind, to give it something, to give the attention something to do rather than get caught up in the constant inner chatter. And this goes, well, its forerunner, actually, in the history of spirituality, goes back to Jesus' temptation in the desert, which I've presented that in, in, in into the silent land, at least. Uh, but, but soon discovered just the name, repetition of the name of Jesus uh, just uh, Jesus. And as things happen, as uh, traditions get old or as a house gets old, uh, you get a lot of things thrown in there too, like an old sewing kit. And so it gradually would grow. Jesus Christ, Son of God. Uh, Jesus Christ, Son of the living God. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me. And the, by the time the Russians got it, is Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Okay. <laughs> and, um, you know, so, so various forms of that, but they serve a purpose of uh, giving the attention something to uh, focus on rather than the uh, cycle of inner videos, inner chatter, inner commentary going on in our heads. Uh, so, so it has that practical function, function, but also in a Christian tradition, the, the Jesus prayer is also linked to a theology itself, that in reciting the name of Jesus, one is conformed by the Holy Spirit to the word Jesus, who then ushers us into the, de de the depths of the Father. So it, it's tied to uh, a Trinitarian theology. But, but you don't, uh, you're not meant to think about that stuff, you know, while praying. Mm. It's simply the, the repetition, the repetition. And, and then it certainly does become part of you. And it also, a question I often get is, is does it always need to be repeated? Uh, and I, I said, no, uh, it doesn't. Like, it is part of the Jesus prayer tradition itself. But, you know, a, a, an eagle does not always have to flap its wings. It can soar for hours, hours. But, but when, um, when necessary... And so, and so with us, uh, uh, um, it's just when necessary that we, the attention has been stolen, uh, hijacked, then, then we used to bring ourselves back. That's very similar to the instructions for centering prayer, which <clears throat> I know you're familiar with. I'm curious, and you may not be able to answer this question, but is that really unique to Christian contemplative practice or do, uh, do Eastern, you know, Buddhist or, or, or Vedantist, do, do they have this kind of practice of letting the mantra fall away? I'm just curious. Do you, do you know, Martin? 
I suspect that it happens. I, 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 I do know certain Buddhist traditions where they will emphasize its constant repetition. And this is, and this, you know, for example, certain Hindu traditions. And this, by the way, is where John Maine uh, figured, you know, uh, discovered in Hindu tradition something that became part of his teaching of the repetition of the word. And and they would emphasize its constant repetition, but I've been told by, because uh, I, I, I speak to their groups a lot, I've been told that uh, they've sort of uh, not emphasizing that so much anymore. When any of these disciplines, when one enters them, there is a, to a certain, well, moment or silence just simply opens at a deeper depth, so to speak. And whether the mantra, the prayer word is being said is really irrelevant. Yeah, so I'm just kind of curious just to kind of finish this thought in the, just to make sure I have this correct here, especially for the people who might not know, the Jesus prayer, saying that prayer is also linked, it's embodied, right? Because it's it's linked with breath. It's not just purely a mental exercise. Thanks. Thanks for saying that. Yes, it's, it's uh, linked to uh, the breath. Uh, John Clemacus Step 27 in his book, let the name of Jesus cling to your very breath and you will know the meaning of stillness or silence. It's the same same word uh, mm. in Greek. Uh, so it's, it's also very incarnational. One thing that contemplative practices do is, it, you know, whereas skeptics say, you know, you're all in the head, you're space cadet, or just something like that. Well, if I am space cadet, it's for another reason. <laughs> <laughs> Not because of this, right. <laughs> it's, it's, you inhabit your body much more deeply. And, of course, we all need to breathe. And so how simple to observe that attention to what we're already doing can uh, silence, can can still, can calm, uh, you know, in, in, in um, say, you know, somebody having a panic attack, the first thing, you know, so we'll do is tell them to breathe deeply because their, their breathing is all up here, you know, and I, I notice when I'm leading retreats, um, I... I it's easy for me to spot where people are breathing from. And there's a whole lot of anxiety, um, disease, and dis-ease, you know, uh, uh, from here. And so in say, cognitive behavioral therapy, they will first not ask, you know, in contrast to sort of Rogerian-based talk therapy, what, what are you feeling? You want to know what are your, what are your thoughts? Because like the desert tradition, they knew the thoughts that occurred produced the inner commentary. And you become very sensitized to, to your, your, your body, 
uh, it's very incarnational from, you know, to use a Christian right. framework to it. Right. Yeah, no, that's, that's wonderful. I just wanted to clarify that. So what I'm interested in as I'm an adjunct professor at a university and, and my background is the academy. And so I've, I've read your academic monograph, which by the way, I absolutely adored. So thank you for that. And my, my question is this, definitely we're interested in on this podcast about silence as broadly, everything from the spiritual to the psychological to the physical health that happens because we engage with silence and and allow for it in our lives and not to close it out. And so an academic piece here for me, without being too abstract, I'm kind of curious when this invitation into silence that you spoke about as a kid, this spaciousness, this wonder, how that kind of opened up into an academic exploration and maybe how silence allows us to know and how you bring that into the classroom. Well, began doctoral studies in Rome at the uh, Patristic Institute, and I'm reading you know, all of these old codgers, you know. And <laughs> yes, they can, they can be paralytically boring. Yes, page after page after page, and then just sheer gold. Yes, and and I could see in a particular course I was taking by the. A professor who was the most influential professor because of of this, although he was he was monumentally boring, <laughs> um, and he sort of looked like. Do you remember Herman Munster? Oh my lord, yes. Uh, yeah. Her, Herman Munster as Einstein, but anyway, he had very very idiosyncratic way of speaking Italian, and and but thankfully he wrote out his notes. But anyway, I. I saw, and it was really something of an awakening, I, I saw the entire spinal column of the Christian contemplative tradition. Mm. And so I've, I've used that in not simply the, the, that book, but in some of you know, the uh, boring articles that I've, I've, I've written. But they all do come out of, uh, of this. But I realized that... If I could get out, extract this this very fourth, second to fourth century way of, of speaking about these things, which are pretty inaccessible uh, to the non-specialist, but bring this and 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 sort of uh, graft it into the categories in which modern people experience life. And using as a as a sort of a shoehorn uh, contemporary literature, because you notice I, I love to quote literature and poetry as something from uh, you know, faith and, and, and culture to to help make this graft. So so that these ancient writers to enhance to see what what they were talking about, you're actually wrestling with. We're talking about you, the mm. wrestling mat of your mind, mm. and and so that's what gave. Once I, you know, had time. I mean, uh, that, then I I start turned my attention to, you know, having a go at these 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 uh, books on contemplative practice. 
Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in this 30 seconds of silence. And so my understanding is that you were able to then, so he, that was the academic question. Now the practical question as a teacher, you bring silence to your students. Is that correct? Yes. Um, we, in my, uh, especially one course I teach called the contemplative tradition for upperclassmen, but also in some of my graduate courses when it's appropriate to the material. Yes, we spend, uh, for example, the, the contemplative tradition. Now, so, so stop me if I've talked too much about it, because I love talking about my st students. No, that's great. So I've been teaching it for, I can't remember how many, well, you know, probably at least 15 years. And several years ago, uh, a PBS program, Religion and Ethics Newsweekly, came to film my class. They ended up, well, focusing way, way, way too much on me, but... So they came in the classroom, and so it's it's a uh, we begin um, the class meets uh, twice a week, so that that means an hour and fifteen minutes, and so we spend the first fifteen minutes in silent prayer, and I've I've taught them how quite practically you know there's been a show and tell thing you know how uh, and I emphasize uh, posture because you know that does impact consciousness or awareness. And they struggle with the student stoop, you know, because in sixth grade they've been carrying book bags that weigh three, weigh three times their, they do. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so uh, that, uh, and, and then the rest of the hour is on the, the academic part of, of the course. But I, I am amazed by this generation of kid, so to speak. There is an aptitude towards it. Wherever they are with respect to institutional religion, they know this speaks to something of deep importance to them. And, and now I introduce it into my uh, intro to theology class, which is a, you know, a, a much broader thing, but, but I find it important uh, because if you're not uh, if God is not a thing and can't be pinned down by a concept, first introduce them to a inner discipline that involves the letting go of concepts. And then you can you know, begin to, to at least intellectually see the sense of how to relate, how, how to conceive the inconceivable, because you know, through the practice of letting go of concepts, and so there, and then in my graduate courses, I remember teaching a, a, a seminar on uh, the desert tradition, early monasticism, and uh, where I introduced this in the same way, 15 uh, minutes. And then I was the following semester, 
I was teaching a, a course on Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. And for some reason, I didn't see it as uh, relevant as you know, teaching the uh, desert uh, tradition. But, you know, at the end of the first class, you know, after gone through the syllabus and, and so forth, this, uh, a student said, aren't you going to teach us how to pray? So, I mean, word got round among the graduate students. That this <laughs> and, and so I did. And then uh, in other courses that I do, I, I, I do it. They, they, they want it. So I have incorporated it into this. And there, there's a whole area of interest now of introducing this into the classroom, no matter the discipline. Mm. Yeah, and growing body of uh, literature about this. Mm. When you do this, is it, it's not graded? Is it, is it, is there journal reflection? Is there papers? Are there like, is it integrated into the classroom specifically, or are you just helping them see and it's like added to the class? I tell them this is the most important part of the course, but I can't grade you on it. Right. This is your, your mind, the wandering, rovering, chattering mind. Not that's a judge free, judgment free, grade free zone. Right. I do, however, periodically ask uh, uh, anonymous essays, mm. uh, uh, a short, like three three pages, on, on certain questions. And there's one question I ask at the end of a semester where they will have had the most exposure to periods of sitting in the science. Oh, plus they have a homework assignment every single day, at least ten minutes. And, you know, I, I can't grade you on this, but I tell them I will know. <laughs> which, which is true. Yeah. Which you can know. But anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, one uh, anonymous question I'll ask uh, the undergraduates. What can you tell me about the difference between contemplative calm and, and chemical calm? And, and it is utterly amazing. It, it helps me see the depth of engagement with the material and how articulate they are. Uh, but on an exam, they might miss things out and not be as articulate. But here, it's just incredible what they, the way they can distinguish it and the, the terminology they, they, they use. I, I wish I could grade it uh, because, I mean, they would all get A's. Oh, I guess you can't have that. But, uh, um, <laughs> yeah. but uh, I'm so, curious, uh, by chemical calm, you mean anything from Benadryl to alcohol to whatever... Any, any kind of substance that, whether illicit or illicit, that the person might yeah, yeah. have and some experience with. Villanova is a drinking school, so the alcohol is by far. There are some party drugs. Uh, pot is back, you know. Mm -hmm. We all know it's being legalized everywhere. And mm -hmm. um, uh, but no, it's mainly it's mainly alcohol. Mm -hmm. And but uh, I, I do have a talk I give. Uh, where I just excerpt some of the things they say. And even though I'm speaking to adults, it's as though they're brought back to their time in university. And, uh, you know, it, it, 
makes a big impact on them. Yeah, so, so I integrate things, this into my uh, class, especially the one called the contemplative tradition in, in various ways. What I what I like to do now, Martin, is maybe uh, turn our attention to one of your books. In fact, I first encountered your work with the book called Into the Silent Land. And I, I love to tell this story. I've never told it in your presence, but here goes, that I was working at the Trappist Monastery here in Georgia, and the novice master, whom I know you know, Brother Elias, mm -hmm. came in and ordered eight copies of this book. And I said, why do you need eight copies? And he said, I'm having all the novices read it. And so I ordered nine, and of course the ninth one went home with me, and that was my introduction to your work. And so the book is called Into the Silent Land, and I'm curious how this image of the silent land emerged for you, and if you could just maybe comment on why the silent land, how did that come to be a metaphor or an image of contemplation, or what is its background? So, Well, somehow it just came to me, uh, but as you say, what is the background, it just d dawned on me this second that, that my earliest exposure you know, to silence was walking on land, <laughs> mm. land of my, my parents' uh, property, cycling, uh, walking dogs, you know, possibly that that's it. But I, I think what's it's important to realize that the, the silent land is you. Mm. And it's it's inbuilt, and while this is one of the sort of the paradoxes of of spiritual life, is that it it awakens a search for something that has already found us and is already the the ground of who we are. You know, Saint Augustine of Hippo, out of my order, in Confessions. He says to God, you are closer to me than I am to myself. So we have this self-presence uh, that is, you know, largely constructed out of concepts uh, and, and so forth. But this, uh, this intimacy, this, to shift terms, this silent land, holy land, is already there. That, that image now just becomes so lovely to say that you are the silent land and to start thinking of pilgrimage and everything. The resonances are really powerful to think about traveling through the silent land that you are. Yes, yes. Well, it evokes the desert, of course, um, and the wilderness. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm interested in the spirituality of Ireland, and I think of the, you know, the kind of the desert tradition for the Irish became the bogs or the skelligs, you know, these remote places. But I'm also uh, brought, what also comes to mind is Jesus's language about going into the inner room. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that I know the tradition sees the inner room, the heart is the inner room. That's right. Yes. So the heart is the silent land is what I'm hearing you say. Yes. Yeah. So, go, go into your 
cell, close the door behind you, and you know, th- there is where scripturally I would root mm. the practice of contemplation. And then in what the Desert Fathers made of Jesus' temptation in the desert, they observed that Jesus didn't actually engage in dialogue with the Satan, which, which we normally think, because normally we hear it preached as a gospel in church, where it certainly sounds like a dialogue. We would look at it, and there's all sorts of footnotes. He's quoting uh, Leviticus. Mm. And so they said he's, he's using a phrase of scripture to interrupt dialogue, getting caught up into inner noise and the various forms of temptation to power and uh, uh, whatever, they very soon realized that, I possibly realized that Leviticus isn't a very inspiring book. And, uh, and so soon realized that the name of Jesus handles it all. The name of Jesus casts out demons. Hmm. So does all covers all those bases. So the, the, then the development of Jesus' prayer, but yes, exactly. The, this this inner room, and you know, he seems to be talking about a, your own room as you know, where a place of prayer and and interiorizing that as as your own, um, which which certainly happened later on in come in reflections upon. Those, those that teaching Jews, right, right. And what's interesting to me, you were talking, especially that quote from uh, Augustine of that God is closer than I am to myself. That that idea, uh, it it suggests that there is a part of us that is outside of that is a part of us deeply that is not within my grasp or not within my control. That there is yeah. some aspect of myself that's truly still me, and yet I, I don't have control over that. And that makes me think about uh, the contemporary move. You know, this podcast is is part of that contemporary move, I think, on some level. But there is a, a silence and contemplation has is having kind of a, a, a comeback, a heyday, that, you know, now it's very marketable to start talking about mindfulness or silence or that we should meditate or we should be doing these things. And that what you've described and the way you've talked so far up to this point, I think pushes against that in a sense that uh, this this isn't a marketable skill or we shouldn't be, quote unquote, meditating to be, you know, the top 10 productivity t- tips or something like that. And I was curious as to if you had something to say there about the marketability of silence and and kind of and that. Do you have anything to offer there? Well, I, I have, don't know if to offer. I have uh, concerns. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. the, the corporatization of every aspect of life it seems to be out of control. <laughs> and and it, it is appearing in contemplative disciplines as well. These Disciplines, the the marketplace, so to speak, has taken the depth dimension out of it. For example, the the uh, uh, the topic mindfulness generally. Mm. Well, heavens, you see it 
you see, I had, I was in California and I, once a night, I, was, I had a mindfulness smoothie. Come on. No, no, no. I think it was because it had ginger in it. That, that, that had to be it. Otherwise, <laughs> but, but it's, it's, it's just all, all over the place. And, and mindfulness is a very important tradition out of the pasana. But what's been left out is what can be translated as great mindfulness mm. or awakened mindfulness. While other aspects of it have been very helpful in, uh, say, well, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, it can be a great help for people right. who struggle with depression, anxiety. But then, you know, it's, you know, the psychotherapeutic concern uh, uh, stops. It, it, it isn't uh, so concerned about how this is actually concerned with what we would call a very intimate, deep prayer. That's just not in the remit. That would be wonderful, you know, I suppose. And then people spend a fair bit of money and they get a certificate and now they can teach mindfulness when there's no proper assessment with how deeply they have gone. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, minimally, I think, means you have uh, seen through thoughts. You've seen the emptiness of thoughts at the very least. I don't want to throw the cat amongst the pigeons, but, but uh, just getting certificates in this and that uh, and so you've done a course, some of these are can, you can do online and you receive a certificate and, and, and then there you are suddenly a, a mindfulness teacher or uh, uh, you're a spiritual director because you did these things, mm. uh, you know, and, and uh, I think that is important to have people have access to spiritual direction because you don't always get you know, you don't get it from typical church life. Mm -hmm. You know, when you, most people say, you know, they're depending on a 12-minute homily, mm. uh, uh, which may not speak to anything. So they, they need more. And so it's important to have people to go to speak with. And, and I think most ones I've encountered are trained listeners, but they have not gone in their own experience deeper than the discursive levels of consciousness very deeply. Mm. Mm. And so the, these are my, uh, some of my concerns, of, I call the, the, um, the marketability of it. When it just, you know, if you buy a product, you expect that product. But in this, the pathless path of spiritual life there aren't those predictabilities and 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 so i think with, with without stopping those I, I i think we need to be aware of the effect that uh the corporatization of consciousness its pervasiveness and the risk is of compromising something utterly precious in yeah. the discovery of this contemplative tradition, that, mm -hmm. that it goes deeper than 
a certificate can measure. This is the end of a multiple part interview. Part two of this interview will continue in the next episode. We are encountering silence. I'm Kevin Johnson. To learn more about me, please visit kevinmichaeljohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. Find out about my work at carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. My website is cassidyhall.com. Please visit the podcast's website at EncounteringSilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on this podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit Patreon.com slash EncounteringSilence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters. Our circle of supporters help tremendously in sharing our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you.